welcome to the Seeing Ourselves podcast. We are recording from the National Maritime Museum and I am joined today by Fiona Compton. Hi Fiona. Hi Sharon. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me. Just for a little brief overview of who Fiona is, if you're not aware of her, she's a London-based St Lucian photographer, artist, filmmaker and historian. Fiona has been working as a professional photographer, working for the UK's largest publishing houses. Over the past 17 years, her work has explored the various disparities in representation of the Afro-Caribbean diaspora within art and mainstream media. Fiona continues her mission to educate in innovative ways through events and online through her account, Know Your Caribbean. Fiona also runs creative workshops for children and young people, teaching the history and culture of the Caribbean in venues such as the South Bank Centre and the Black Cultural Archives in London. Her clients have included HSBC, Amazon, Sony Music and Cosmopolitan magazine. Fiona remains a strong advocate for her history and culture and is an official ambassador for London's Notting Hill Carnival, the second largest cultural festival in the world. It's so good to have you here. <laughs> it's good to be here. It's good to be here. There's a lot to unpack today. There is. There's a lot to unpack. I've obviously given the listeners at home a little overview of who you are. Can you explain some of the work that you've been doing most recently? Okay, well, I started New York Caribbean in 2017 because my mom is a kind of collector and she always had me going on eBay to bid on these old postcards of the Caribbean images from like 100 years ago plus and I'd never seen anything like that. And I started to look at their faces, what they wore, like how the houses looked and I got really pulled into these telling of these stories, right? So over time, I started this platform where I wanted to really revise how we saw ourselves in history because, yes, I grew up in the Caribbean. Yes, we talk about our history, but it is still from a very Eurocentric perspective. So, for example, growing up in St. Lucia, if you ask any St. Lucian what is our history, they say, oh, we're seven times British, seven times French, and it's because St. Lucia was so beautiful, and they fought for us, and then we ended up becoming British. And we stayed with a lot of pride, and then I started to dissect that concept because there is a complete removal of our African identity, and it's not about the beauty of St. Lucia, but it was about that it was a profitable colony, and it was rooted in enslavement of Africans. So... The fact that we and, you know, those in St. Lucia who are 95% black, for us to be talking about ourselves and there's a complete removal of how we talk about our own history, I saw that as a problem and I wanted it to be something that had to be discussed. So that story about St. Lucian history encompasses why I do Know Your Caribbean. I think the narrative that has been defined for us and how we look at ourselves has always been an inclusion of a European perspective and the complete removal or a dismissal or a, a whitewashing of everything else that's part of our history and I want to undo that. Yeah and I think you undo it really well through the platform. That's how I first came across your work and I love the way that you review, you dissect, you interrogate historical documents and represent them to us with 
a very, very well-informed narrative. So your comments are always on point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I always come away thinking, I should know this and I don't, but I'm so keen to learn more. So it's really inspiring and I'm really pleased that you do this work. And I think it's testament to the work that you're doing that you have so many followers as well. Thank you. I mean, the thing is, I think it's not that we don't care about history. It's how history was told. I dropped history in secondary school. I had no interest in it at all. Mm -hmm. And it's just maybe by happenstance, I come across stories and I have a very vivid imagination. So I start to imagine it and... I want people to connect to these stories in the same way. I think we love drama, we love emotion, we love all of these things. And all of those things have been glossed over when we tell our stories. But we love, we will stay and watch The Crown or Bridgerton or we'll watch Game of Thrones. And all of these things have very historical context and things that, you know, are set in eras that we were never part of, but we get so involved in it. So it's not that to say that we only connect to things it's not to say that we only connect to modern stories. Mm -hmm. We don't. But those stories are told in a very beautiful way that mm -hmm. connects to the human side. And that's what I try to do with Know Your Caribbean because we don't get taught history in that way. So I want to bring it, really, really bring it to life. Mm. And it's reminded me of a body of work you made a few years ago where you recreated some old, was it old historical photographs? Or artworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do a lot of recreations in my mm -hmm. work. So when I did my, my degree in photography, mm -hmm. I was very frustrated at the time because I felt like there was very little representation of black photographers. Yes, there is autograph, but even within autograph, it was very much Jamaican or West African photographers, and we are way more dynamic than that. And to kind of open up the space to show that we're not a monolithic society. Because when I used to go to classes, they just show me all of these pictures, which is very white, mm -hmm. and I didn't see myself. So I'm like, I'm going to take this thing and make it my own. So I recreated a lot of old iconic paintings like Mona Lisa, or even images of Marilyn Monroe, the girl of the pearl earring, which is... That's the image that stands yeah, out for me. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, people love that one because I took that image and I photographed a black woman and instead of a pool, she has a seashell and her head is wrapped in Madras fabric. And all of those things talk about heritage and migration in terms of the story of what Madras fabric means coming from India, developed by Scottish cloth makers, traveling across by Portuguese traders to the continent of Africa, used as a material for bartering during the slave trade and then ended up in the Caribbean and is now something that is a very valued cloth. I'm actually wearing it on my head today mm -hmm. and is part of our national costumes. So within that, that just piece of cloth in itself tells so much about our heritage. I didn't realize at the time when I was making it, how important that piece of work would mm. be to me and to a lot of people as well. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful piece of work. That whole series is making me think of the reasons why I make the work I make through seeing ourselves, which obviously is a celebration of black women. It references portraiture, obviously, and identity. And I think it's so important that we actually, pardon the pun, mm. <laughs> but see ourselves represented back, represented in a very positive in a positive light, because so often we're not represented back by ourselves, actually, positively. Absolutely. I think, especially with your work, it's very delicate, mm. not figuratively, 
not only figuratively, but literally very delicate. And black women are never given that delicacy. They're never given that to be handled with care and literally kind of associated with fragility and softness and, you know, light and color and to be seen as this special, delicate artifact that you mm. must, you know, really care for, you mm. know? We've never been. It's always strong. We're resilient. We're sexual exploits, whatever, exotic fruits. Delicacy and black women are never synonymous with each other. So I yeah. think that's really important. The work that you are doing as well. Thank you. So we today are going to be talking about revolution mm-hmm. and and you've chosen one piece in particular to talk about. Yeah. I think it's really important that we start with what that piece is. Okay. And also talk about your response to seeing that piece for the first time when we visited the museum here at Greenwich last year. Okay, so the piece that we're discussing today is Victor Hughes' guillotine, and you can find it in a great big glass encasement. And the reason why that piece is so important, I'd have to go back a little bit because it's looking at, and I think most people can understand how the narrative of slavery or our history has been told. 400 years of enslavement, and then, you know, Europeans said, hey, we're going to emancipate you guys, and we're all grateful, and then it was all one big happy family, and then that's it, you know, and that we are passive, that we did not resist, that we just kind of took it. We've been compounded with images of black people kneeling and looking up and say, am I not a man and a brother, and all of those things. We'd never seen images of ourselves during this era and after in empowerment, autonomy, taking control, and like, you know, liberating ourselves, even the term, oh, runaway slave, you know, even that in itself, instead of saying self-liberated, you know, there's no honor in running away. So for example, in St. Lucia, we have a term that's called negmawo. So negmawo is obviously neg, is comes from French black, mawo means to maroon, so to leave, so negmawo. So in St. Lucia, that is seen as an insult. If you call someone a negmawo, you are uncultured, you're uneducated, you live in the bush, you're lazy because you don't work on the plantation, and you know you are uneducated and uncultured because you're not associating yourself or assimilating into a European-styled culture. So even in present day, that is seen as an insult, and that is a reflection of the history that we have been taught to ourselves. So the guillotine and the Negmawa, who are the enslaved who resisted enslavement, in St. Lucia, in St. Vincent, Grenada, and across the Caribbean, that guillotine tells a story of the Negmawa and Victor Hughes and the whole revolution that happened in the Caribbean in the 1790s. So for me to even find out about the revolution, so like I said, we grew up seven times British, seven times French, 14 battles over our island, and then we had slavery, and then yay, independence, and that's it. And then to find out that, because growing up, I knew very little about the Haitian revolution, and then to find out that St. Lucia had its own revolution and that the islands connected. So people from St. Lucia went across to St. Vincent or went down to Grenada or they went across to Guadeloupe. And we were all, all so many black people were working together to enforce this end to enslavement. 
it is completely non-existent in our history books. It's not there. So I came across working with this other solution, historian Dr. Morgan Delfinis, and through his book, he was finding out that they had this guillotine that was brought to this town in Soufre. And Soufre was where it was like the epicenter of the white elite during this time. They put it in this guillotine in a town square and decided to execute like all of these slave masters. I never heard of that before. All we used to hear is that we were being executed, we were being hung, we were being, you know, beheaded and, and our heads put on spikes in these very awful ways to send a message. But to see that the Negmawa was working with this man called Victor Hughes who came down from France and then swept across and saying, yes, I'm putting an end to enslavement, work with me, let's go. And it was the first guillotine to be brought to the Americas from Europe. So it was a big deal. And, you know, he went to Guadeloupe and that he had executed 50 royalists. The fact that this exists, this guillotine is here, right? From 1794, 95 till today, a guillotine that was executing, you know, European slave masters. It is an incredible piece about black resistance. When I saw it, I was completely floored that this was actually here because I was like, the mere fact that you could even imagine that, you know, slave masters will actually, there was some form of retribution to all of this brutality seemed unfathomable. It was something that could never happen. It's, it's something that we just thought was inconceivable. And to see that it, it actually exists in life now, I could look at it and see it right before me. I just couldn't believe it at all. And I think I'll never forget your reaction to seeing it. Moving doesn't even come close to describing it. It's really difficult to put into words. But in that moment, I was able to see the power of seeing these kinds of images. And I think that's what I will always take from just being able to observe your first interaction with the guillotine. But for me, it's, it's only when you bring the guillotine to life through the way you talk about it, through the research that you've done and the way you communicate it, that in that moment, that's when it becomes real. And that's when I'm able to connect to it. Because for me, when I looked at the guillotine, I didn't know what you know, and I don't have that connection. But I now look at it through new eyes. And I think that's the importance of of us telling our own stories. That's when it becomes a real connection. It's not this kind of arbitrary object that someone's just, you know, just put in a space and put in a glass box and then you just kind of write some throwaway description. I think there's so much more because even when I looked at it today, I was still kind of thinking, but where's the story behind it? Can you talk a little bit about the description yeah, the description on there, it just says that uh, this guillotine blade, still mounted with its rivets to its original lead-weighted wooden block, was used in the West Indian island of Guadeloupe by French Republicans during the revolutionary struggles there. It is said to have been used to execute more than 50 royalists. This guillotine is likely to have been taken to the Americas by French revolutionary Commissar Victor Hughes when he was sent to Martinique and Guadeloupe to purge the royalists. In 1794, the British occupied Guadeloupe and Captain Matthew Scott of HMS Rose said to have brought back the guillotine 
blade as a war trophy. So within that, there's this description online, and then there's the one that is in the museum itself where it does talk about Victor Hughes liberating the enslaved Africans. But even in that sense, it did not contextualize how the community that was happening, the revolution that was sweeping across, not just Guadeloupe and Martinique, but across St. Lucia, St. Vincent, Grenada, with Julian Fedon's rebellion, the Garifuna in St. Vincent and the Negmao in St. Lucia. And when I saw the description, I went from a huge high to like mm. a massive low because there's a complete removal of any black resistance in there because it's a strong focus once again on French revolutionary Republicans versus royalists and not contextualizing that royalists were the ones that were for enslavement and that the Republicans were against it. And yes, Victor Hughes was a difficult person. They said he was barbaric and he was a brutal person and he still had his own version of enslavement afterwards. But his campaign across that to end, you know, this elitist enslavement and for him to rally the troops and to put Africans alongside Europeans and equal footing in the armies and all of these things, there's none of that discussion. Mm -hmm. There's none of the discussion that the guillotine wasn't just used in, in Guadeloupe, but actually in other islands as well, specifically to stop the oppression from these elitist French royalists. There's none of that discussion at all. And that was extremely disheartening. So it, of course, people will look at it, oh, it's a guillotine, okay, yes, excuse some people, all right, cool, whatever. But even like the swiftness, because they said that they executed those 50 royalists in the space of one hour. So it was, he was not playing any games. He came down with such ferocity and Britain couldn't stand Victor Hughes and he's seen as this villainous, horrible person, you know, and how can you put an end to enslavement and, and kill, you know, fellow Europeans in this very brutal way, even though this was happening in Europe as well at the same time. So I think how they, they speak about, for example, the Republicans versus the Royalists. I'll have an excerpt I'd like to read from. It's like the History of St. Lucia book. But the description was, when you say how I go into these texts, I love to read these things. And I'll explain why. Because they're actually extremely clear in their horribly racial bias. And one of the things that they said here was, the misguided Republicans fought like men, the emancipated Negroes like savages. I mean, that one sentence in itself encompasses everything in terms of what they thought about people fighting for their own liberty. They saw it as savagery. You know, the royalists were fighting with honor, like men, you know. So it goes on to say there was the white faction and like the black faction, the pro-slavery faction and the anti-slavery faction, the royalists and the republicans, the English and the French. The whole, however, resolved themselves into two principal parties, the friends of law and order and the abettors of anarchy and spoliation. Even that in itself as well is so problematic because one, of course, is filled with honor and valor and the other ones are just abettors of anarchy and spoliation. And that in itself to me is how the guillotine is described here because it's oh, just royalists versus republicans mm -hmm. and not... It's about, you know, the liberation of or the end to something that is very brutal. Mm. And 
Britain's staunch defense in enabling slavery, because this is what this fight is about. It's not just royalists versus Republicans. It is, we are for slavery. Britain is for slavery. French is against it. And that Britain is associating law, honor, order, you know, fighting like men, when you are fighting to enslave black people. That's, that's the heart of it. Mm. And there is no discussion of that at all with that guillotine. No, there isn't. This is a bit more of a general question, mm -hmm. and then we'll go back again. But just how you protect yourself emotionally Girl. from... <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know either, because, yeah, how you protect yourself mm -hmm. from, from having to deal with such triggering, trauma-inducing mm. work because this isn't easy work mm -mm. at all. So as you know, I'm not a historian. <laughs> I'm an artist and I'm an educator. And I come to this work in that I'm, I'm trying to provide platforms to, to work alongside other people mm -hmm. and to ensure that unheard voices are heard and stories are uncovered and told. But even for me today with nowhere near as much experience of engaging with this kind of work as you have I found it really really difficult and challenging to look at the collection and to be in that space and I kind of felt like I was having a it triggered so many things and so many emotions I kind of had to have a little seat my back started to hurt <laughs> yeah I was physically feeling absolutely all the feelings and I just wonder how you deal with how you look after yourself while you're doing this work. Sharon, thank you for asking that question. I don't think people take that into consideration. I think for all of us, whether you know the history or not, how triggering these things are. And to see lack of care in these institutions is difficult. But for me personally, I cannot answer. I'm working through that. Like, for example, remember when we had done the other seeing ourselves when we were doing the unboxing, and it was a really beautiful day with all of us together talking and, you know, going through everything and to have the honor of this space created for us to look at these pieces, to talk very candidly about it. It was a wonderful experience. But why, when I got home, I burst into tears, you know, and I, I cried like a really deep, I had a deep sadness in myself because I also feel very powerless and... It is very triggering, and I think there's, I mean, the past year, 2020 into 2021 has been a lot, but I see triggers everywhere now. And um, what do I do to take care of myself? I whine. I, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> I listen to soca music. I, I, I dig for uplifting stories, like, you know, like, for those who haven't caught Serena's episode of this series, you know, where she was speaking about dance and ritual and, you know, even in some of the images that can be seen as painful and difficult, we still look to find the joy and hope in them and to connect. And that's what I try to do. But I, sometimes I just have to take breaks, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I just have to take some time off and then I can come back because I can find myself 
getting to very low places and being triggered by even the smallest the smallest things especially being in the UK is everywhere mm. it's everywhere you turn if you look up and see this statue if you look here and see this portrait if you see certain statistics it's everything it and all comes back to the history of enslavement mm. and i think it's interesting that for some factions of society they they don't realize how triggering the UK can be they kind of look at the US and go, oh, isn't it awful there? But they can't see anything. And I think sometimes there are subtleties of racism that for some people it's easy for them to overlook and go, but it's not overt, so it doesn't count. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, the thing about Britain is that sometimes it even makes you feel like you could go even insane because you start to question everything so for example this happened this week my friend's daughter she's 18 and she's a, a young black girl from west london and she is babysitting a family and the family is white and you know the the mother or the head of the family said to her you're very well spoken you must have gone to private school and People would say that's a compliment that you are very well spoken, but not looking at below it that it is not commonplace for a young black girl to be well spoken. So therefore, she's an anomaly. So she must have gone to private school, that it is outside the confines of black normalcy to be well spoken. And that is the heart of what British racism is, mm. is that assumption that, oh, this is surprising. You mm. are actually educated. Mm. That's wonderful for you. That expectation that we always are below par. Yeah, and also that there is a single way of being black. Yes. That's what grates me. It's, mm. you know, you can only be black if you like certain types of music mm -hmm. or you eat certain types of food. Or go, or to, you certain go places. to certain places, mm -hmm. yeah. It's as though you can't exist beyond the confines of what constitutes black. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is it's very exhausting. tiring because, you know, in ways with American, American racism, I know not to go to certain towns in Tennessee or Mississippi, but here it is everywhere. And we're just told to get on with it or just leave it or it's not what you think. Mm -hmm. But we know because we can feel the energy and, yeah. you know, that's what makes it hard. And also being told not to not to think or respond in a certain way. I think that's mm -hmm. called gaslighting. I yes. think people will find. So they should back off from that. <laughs> <laughs> they should. Is there anything more you want to say about the, the guillotine? guillotine? Yeah. So one of the things with the guillotine is something that I found as well. It's almost to me like British delusion. Just how intensely they have negated from the humanity behind people just wanting not to be enslaved, right? So within this excerpt, it says here that, so what happened basically, Victor Hughes and his crew come to San Lucia and, you know, they start to start beheading all these royalist slave masters, slave owners. And some of them were actually very brutal. And this is what sparks one of the rebellions in San Lucia is that, you know, some young men were beheaded and their heads put on spikes in 1791. And this breeded a deep resentment within the enslaved on the island. And, you know, one of the leaders was a woman, actually. And she was a mixed race woman called Flor Gayad. But she amongst so many other revolutionaries had joined in with Victor Hughes and what was happening. So it became so volatile that the British actually left St. Lucia 
And, you know, for a time, St. Lucia was free. There was no enslavement in St. Lucia. They say it was for a year. Other historians say it might be three years. But there was a period of time where in which all the British left. But there is a part that says the British, leaving behind some women and children and a quantity of stores, withdrew undisturbed to the ships. So basically what they're saying is British troops abandoned their own women and children in this fort. And I, I know the fort is on one fortune. Um, and they were hiding in there. And thus the whole island reverted to the Republican control. It is but justice to the enemy to state that the women and children were without delay allowed to pass over to Martinique in a flag of truce. So, and this is just one little sentence, but they're saying that the British abandoned their own women and children. These brutes, these savages, saw these women and children and sent them to safety to Martinique to say as a flag of truce. But it is to me saying we're not going to be brutal to these women and children. And even then, you know, the writer just continues to go on about the barbarity and savagery of these people who were just fighting for their own freedom. And those kind of things really, really, really great to me because mm. I'm seeing the humanity in these people. And, you know, one of the, the last excerpts in this thing was, which I found really difficult was that the British had reinvaded and that when they got to this fort, it said this, the enemy's cannon had ceased. And when the smoke was dispersed, instead of an armed band of soldiers, there issued from the fortress a train of Negro bearers carrying bears to collect and take the wounded who, moaning piteously and crying for help, was strewed among the heaps of the dead. The Republicans, daunted by this defeat, sent a flag of truce to request a suspension of hostilities. And within that, so what you're saying is, when you're talking about French versus English and royalists and Republicans, these are black men and women fighting. It's not French, you think in French, Europeans and all of that. It's a lot of black people who are literally fighting. So when you talk about in this description of the guillotine about Republicans and Royalists, you have to think about the faces of these people. And within that, after what happened, is that the story of that guillotine goes into so many different threads of history because after that, the British reinvade and they round up all so many of the rebels, I should say freedom fighters, in St. Lucia, in St. Vincent, in Grenada, Martinique, Guadeloupe, and they ship them off to different places, either back to Bristol to be re-enslaved somewhere else. Some are sent to Sierra Leone to work on plantations there. And some were sent to Portsmouth Castle. And they spent a lot of time in Portsmouth Castle. And there's a whole story there. So it Portchester Castle in Portsmouth. And all of that is British history as well. Mm -hmm. So that guillotine sends you all over the place. And then, you know, very quickly, you know, one ship of these of these rebels, freedom fighters, one ship of these freedom fighters, on their way to Bristol, end up in a shipwreck off the coast in Rappery Cove. And they, the morning of, after this horrible storm, it's a ship called the London, and these villagers come down to this cove, and they say that the beach was awash with the bodies of Negroes, but gems and jewels from all the spoils of Britain's plunders, from Mayan gold to Spanish coins to rubies and diamonds amongst these bodies of these you know, revolutionaries who were taken away from the islands. And, you know, their bodies were decided to, you know, raid and take all uh, the booty and stuff. 
And, you know, one man said, oh, we are Christians, we must bury these dead. So they hastily buried their bodies. And then it, they made their way with all the gold and coins and stuff. And then 200 years later, this young little boy is playing on the beach in Rappery and he starts to find bones. And then, you know, this mass grave is found and their bones are still in the Rappery Museum boxed away. The remains of these people still has not been repatriated either back to St. Lucia or to Africa. There's been a whole kind of war within that. But you know that, you know, most of the people on that ship, they drowned because they still had the shackles on their ankles. So all of those things, you know, are really, really important. And those things come from the guillotine. And, you know, something like when you read through some of the records, they talk about that a small boat went out, because this is like a, a, a coastal village, a seaside village, where people have their boats and stuff. And during the storm in the middle of the night, like, you know, this one man goes out and he tries to save them. And, and he, he speaks, he shouts out to the captain, the cap- and he says, where are you from? And the captain says, from hell, bound for damnation. And, you know, that in itself, and pretty much there were some survivors and they were sent off to either Porchester Castle or re-enslaved somewhere. But even that in itself and the image of all of these bodies with the gold and the jewels, and they said there was one body of one white woman alongside the bodies of all of these black people on this beach off the coast of England with just all the spoils of British plunders, I think is integral for people to know, all of us to know. And I feel like it's an unfinished story because their bones, their remains, some of which were children, uh, there's an eight-year-old boy who's there and he's not buried with honor. All of them have not been buried with honor and all of those things come from that guillotine. So this is why when I saw it, it brought back all the emotions from what the captain said to, you know, the bodies. They, they described, they said, like a pearl amongst the stones or rubies or something was a body of this white woman who they didn't know who she was. But even those comparisons that she is just, you know, the, yeah, the she's most precious. precious. Yeah. She's precious. And that goes back to your work, Sharon, mm. and the delicacy and fragility of black women and that this woman was seen as this pearl. And all of those things, as I said, come from that guillotine. So when I see it, everything, all of those images of like what I had just read about when the smoke cleared and all you saw was these defeated, you know, quote unquote, Negroes, I felt their heartbreak. I felt it because they were on the cusp of having that freedom and for you to have it and then for it to be taken away. Mm. You know, all of those things. And that's why it's so important to me. So when I saw like the very reductive description, that's why it brought me from an extreme high to mm. see, wow, this thing exists, and then back to a low. Mm. And it's almost as though you were defeated, or we are defeated. Absolutely. At that time too. I just think there's a similarity, you know, in seeing the guillotine and the kind of excitement that you felt in seeing it and then looking at how it was described and then looking at it in the context of that gallery space. And there's a similarity between that and their, their hope for freedom and also their kind of... Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Absolutely. It's extremely symbolic. And even like when you look at it in the way that it's lit in the mm. museum and it's just a singular object and it's very different to 
everything else within that display because there are whips, there are shackles, there's boats, there's coins, there's all these different things. And then this one symbol of like resistance and that's complete removal of the entire narrative. Mm. It just brought me back and reminded me of where I was standing, which is Britain and Britain's way of telling stories. It's almost tokenistic. Yes. In so many ways. it's There's so much potential to tell a story and tell a story fully because, as you said earlier, I think we were having a chat and you said... It's easy, you know, if people really want to do the work, you just Google, it's really straightforward. Simple, It's yeah. not very difficult to to find. You don't even have to dig too deep to find out the true stories. But it's almost tokenistic if that object is just placed there with not much of a description, without the context. It's just people will just walk past because they're not going to spend the time. So I think it's really significant and poignant that you were in that space and that you are here today to tell that story because it's such an important story that needs to be told. Thanks, Sharon. I feel very passionate about it. And like I said, it it brings you all the way back to Britain. Even like when you look at Porchester Castle, mm. there were so many women and children who were living in that castle as prisoners of war for so long and that little things like during the winter time you know they had white prisoners there who used to steal their clothing and bedding and coats because they thought that they were superior to them so imagine these people coming from the caribbean never seeing this feeling this cold they didn't know what to eat they didn't know what to feed them and that all of everything was kept being stripped away from them over and over again and you know there's one of the very famous revolutionaries who was captured into Porchester Castle is Louis Delgre. And he went back to Guadeloupe. He went to Europe, found his way back to Guadeloupe to be a revolutionary. And what had happened is, is that himself and this other very famous revolutionary, Mulatra Solitude, and she was very heavily pregnant and he said she was very beautiful and that she had one, like two different colored eyes and it was like, it was she was this master of the machete and she was a great fencer and like she was just this really badass woman and they had this big rebellion because france would start to try and reinstate slavery because of napoleon and what happened is 400 of them were fighting the french and they were cornered and what they did is that they surrounded themselves by gunpowder and they said liberty or death and then they all blew themselves up because they refused to be re-enslaved. All of that links back to that guillotine. And, you know, Mulatra Solitude did survive despite being heavily pregnant and all her comrades, you know, perishing in that explosion. And, you know, her story in itself and all of that's why with that guillotine, everywhere, 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 it brings me to these. It is the story of thousands of people just wanting to have their own freedom of their lives. That's what I see in that guillotine. I don't see anything about French versus English in it, not one bit at all. What I'm really aware of when you were speaking earlier is your correction of use of language. And I understand why you're doing that. Can you explain a little bit about that? Because you are correcting the way certain words have been taught to you or you've been familiarized with and you're constantly correcting yourself yeah absolutely i think even going through my journey of becoming a historian you know using the word slave 
So therefore, a slave is final. That is what you are, and that's all you will be. You are a slave. But if you say the word enslaved, therefore it is the role of being a slave has been enforced onto you by someone else. So therefore, there is space for you to be something else or that you were something else or that you can be something else or that you are something else or that you are actually a human and not just an object. Things like that. So like talking about runaway slave versus self-liberated African. It's not you're, you're running away from something, you're some kind of coward, but I'm liberating myself. It changes the energy. Mm. And then rebel versus freedom fighter or, you know, revolutionary. Yeah, that's the one that stood, stood yeah. out, the yeah. rebel because, freedom fighter. Because, you know, rebels, rebel is, it depends on who you're talking to or what you're talking about. Mm. And I think there's a, a lot of discomfort in calling enslaved Africans or persons of color because there's a, a lot of people of mixed heritage as well who are part of that journey, the Garifuna, all of that, to say that they were revolutionaries or freedom fighters because freedom fighters gives you humanity. You know, you can call a dog rebellious, you can call an animal rebellious, but you cannot... Freedom fighter adds humanity to it. It does. It also adds status, doesn't it? Absolutely. And empowerment. It's, yeah, it has a completely different feel. Absolutely. Different. Absolutely. And, and just thinking about if we actually saw that kind of terminology used constantly in what we see of ourselves, just think how that would feel for us you know rather than it just being us so often that are correcting ourselves imagine if the wider institutions would then correct themselves on mass how that would feel for so many that would be extremely powerful very very impactful because it has to be a collective thing not just coming from black voices you know this kind of perspective is shifted is very 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 important I don't think people understand the power of words. So this guillotine stuff is from the 1790s. And one of the most powerful books ever written, and I'll say that because we still find it now in 2021, was written by Edward Long in Jamaica, which was written just 20 years before this guillotine. And Edward Long has been instrumental in influencing Britain with white supremacy. And in his referencing, because he called himself a scientist, even though he wasn't, and he used to speak about Africa, even though he never set foot there, but he was a slave owner in Jamaica. And he has this book called The History of Jamaica, 1774. And he speaks extensively about black people as apes, that they are not human, um, and comparing them to orangutans and apes. And if you're looking at things like what happened with the Euros and so on, you cannot tell me that those things the influence and the power of word is not strong because everything he said 300 years ago, people are saying now those things didn't come. The whole monkey ape reference doesn't come from anywhere. So therefore, if we're changing the words and saying, stop saying rebels with free, freedom fighters or slave to enslaved, all of those things are extremely important. And we really have to be mindful of our language and especially institutions. I encourage them to look at that because you can talk about the, the barbarity of a slave or the rebels did this, but it's still a removal of humanity and empowerment mm. in, in their descriptions. It is, completely. Mm. I want to say a huge thank you to you, Fiona, for this really, truly insightful conversation. I've absolutely loved speaking to you this afternoon. And 
it's given me so much to think about, not just in terms of this project, but wider projects and how we kind of see ourselves in everyday life when we look into museum spaces. You drew upon something that Serena talked about in her conversation with me, which was finding the joy in even the most challenging, difficult and triggering imagery in collections. And it's something that I'll definitely be taking forward in my own practice because I'm aware that I put away sometimes when things get difficult. But thank you for your openness. Thank you for your research and all of your work. How can people find out more about you? Where can they find you? Yeah, if you are on Instagram, it's Know Your Caribbean. So it's K-N-O-W, Your Caribbean. Also have the website. It's just Know Your Caribbean everywhere. Um, <laughs> that's it. And yeah, I, I mean, I would love for people to reach out to let me know like what stories they'd love to hear more about. And, you know, I'm working on a podcast right now so people can listen in more. And I'm really just focusing on showing just how dynamic and diverse and how beautiful and actually empowering our stories are. So if that's what you're looking for, then yes, you can find me. Wonderful. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Sharon. You've been listening to the Seeing Ourselves podcast hosted by me, Sharon Waters. I'm a London-based artist whose practice includes hand-assembled collages celebrating black women. You can find my work on Instagram by heading to London underscore artist one or by visiting my website, londonartistone.com.